Amen. Thank you guys for leading. Micah, Caleb, thanks for your leadership and worship today. Yeah, come on. Come on. High school. So you guys are in high school? Man. Man. Um, we're, in a, we're in a sermon series studying through the book of Hebrews. The title of the series is Look Up. We're trying to just remind ourselves that life can often cause our eyesight to get fixed on whatever thing, whatever challenging thing, whatever exciting thing, whatever entertaining thing is in front of us. And we need to pause and we need to remember to look up. Remember that God is actually here and with us all times, always. We can't get ourselves stuck in the stuff in front of us. And it's also called look up because that's a short uh, command, an instruction, an exhortation. And the way we're going through the book of Hebrews is we're looking at all of the different exhortations that the author makes to a congregation of Jewish Jesus followers living somebody, somewhere around the city of Rome in the ancient Roman Empire in the late first century A.D. And here's, here's our hope, here's our thought. These words of encouragement, of exhortation, that were spoken to people thousands of years ago and proved powerful to them and have proven powerful guides and sources of life to faithful women and men for generations, we think they can be powerful to us as well. So um, today I'm going to talk about the, the scripture that comes right after the scripture we talked about last Sunday. So last Sunday, uh, we talked about Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. And the, the warning was to watch out. And the warning was to watch out so that you don't fall into sin and unbelief, which would cause you to turn away from the living God. It's a warning that actually um, has been a valid warning for people across generations. And it caused me to ask a question. It caused me to think about if, if, there's this, if there's this reality. We see the reality in our own hearts, if we're honest, I think. We see this reality throughout history. Like, if we see the reality that we as humans are actually really, really good at messing things up for ourselves, like, what, what is it that causes that cycle to happen? And, and as I was reflecting on that, I asked a question. I said, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we could learn a lesson and then just apply that lesson consistently for the rest of our lives? Wouldn't it be great if like, you know how people, they're like, hey, hey, take it from me. Hey, hey, learn from my mistakes. Has anybody ever said to you, hey, learn from my mistakes? Has anybody had somebody, wouldn't it be great if you could just be like, oh, okay, I will. You made the mistake? Now I will never make the mistake because you told me about your mistakes. So now, man, that would be nice. The moment I figure out how to do that, I might just make that my only preaching topic from now on. Like, people, here's how you do it. But I haven't quite figured it out yet. My personal experience has confirmed that I have not been able to take the mistakes of others and perfectly avoid them in my own life. And that's why the exhortation from last week, watch out, is so valuable. Because even though we know the dangers, the ways that sin can cause us to hurt ourselves and hurt others, the ways that we 
look for life where we know it can't be found. Even though we know that that's out there, we've seen it before, we've experienced it before, kind, loving people have warned us about it before, we still, as the Apostle Paul famously wrote in Romans 7, he said, I know what I don't want to do, but that's what I do. And I know what I want to do, but that's what I don't do. Oh, you call that the doo-doo passage. I do not know what I want to do. So we asked last week, we said, there's this warning, watch out. And, and we, we wrestled with a pretty heavy question. When I come up to hard places in life, where, where do I go? What do I look for as the source of life? And if I can be honest, am I looking for life where it can't be found? Even though I've proven that if I go to this place, I know Experience has told me I'm never going to find life there. So you know what I'm going to look for life? I'm going to look back there again just to double check. I'm just going to make sure. It was wrong the first time. It was wrong the hundredth time. But maybe the hundred and first time. But so we have this question. It's this weird cycle. We, we, we do dumb stuff. We hurt ourselves. We hurt others. We go looking for life where it can't be found. How do we break that cycle? If we're, if we're a community that's trying to live our lives following Christ, like we just prayed, what can we do with and for one another to help each other if we get stuck in this cycle? And sure enough, I think that's the question on the mind of this pastor who wrote this sermon that we call the letter to the Hebrews. I think that's what's on their mind because the very next verse, right? The very next verse, they said, Hebrews 3.12, watch out so that you don't fall into sin and unbelief, so that you don't turn away from the living God. That's what he just said. And the, the congregation, us, we go, okay, thanks for the warning. How do I do that? What, what can I do to make sure I watch out? And the, and the author says, oh, I'm glad you asked. Here's my answer, Hebrews chapter 3 Verse 13. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So the second half of the verse, he, he basically repeats what he just said in the previous verse. What's our goal? Our, our goal is to not get hard hearts and turn away from God. Our goal is to not do the dumb stuff called sin that we know is going to hurt us and others. So how are we going to do that? First part of the verse. Encourage one another daily. Looked up the Greek for daily. It's actually, no, no, no. It's actually two words. The first word is every. And the second word is day. So I don't know about this translation daily, how they're really messing with it. It was two words in the original, but then to clarify, as long as it is called today, I don't know about you, but I actually call every day today. That's, that's a standard in my vocabulary. That's how I refer to today. So, the sermon I want to preach, the exhortation from the author of Hebrews today is, encourage one another daily, which raises a pretty critical question. Okay, well, what do you mean by encouragement? What is 
Encouragement. I asked you in the all church email, I said, can you think of a time when somebody has been an encouragement to you? When somebody like spoke a word or showed up and just right when you needed it, maybe it was in a big way, maybe it was in a small way. When's the time somebody has encouraged you? I want to spend the rest of our time together exploring the word encouragement. And I want to explore it by looking at three uh, kind of stories or contexts from Scripture and ancient uh, God-fearing people that I think are, are background to what the author is writing to the congregation in the letter to the Hebrews. So um, today's sermon is encouragement in three parts. We're going to take a bit of a journey. If you ever find yourself thinking, Carl, what in the world does this have to do with encouragement? Don't worry. We're going to get there. All right? Just don't worry. So here we go. Encouragement in three parts. First part, the story of Job. When I hear the word encouragement, the first thing that always comes to my mind is the story of Job. Here's how the story starts. You meet a guy, his name is, shocker, Job. That's his name. And Job is killing it. He is righteous. He's he's a good man. He follows God. He fears God in everything he does. And sure enough, on top of that, Things are going well for Job. He has got livestock like you don't even know what to do. I mean, picture Yellowstone Ranch. Anybody with me? Right? Just, you got to take out all the messy, dark drama from that TV series, Yellowstone Ranch. But like, beautiful acres, lots of pasture. Job is doing well. So the first scene of the book of Job is is a very familiar scene. A man with a big family and a successful uh, uh you know, agriculture, farming, ranching, business. And then right after this first short scene, the author pivots to a much less familiar scene. Here's what the text says. It says, One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And I don't know about you, but whereas I have seen beautiful ranches and livestock, I've I don't know. I've never seen the angels come and present themselves to the Lord. So this is like, this is foreign territory for me. I, I can't, I mean, I can make up an image, but I, I don't really know what it looks like. And then as if that's not strange enough to be able to picture, we get this next little sentence. And Satan also came with them. Is that normal? Like, is that how Satan rolls? It's like all the angels, they're coming, they're going to hang out with God, and Satan's like, hey, can I take along? You know? Uh, Just to clarify, though, um, the Hebrew word here, the Satan, simply means the adversary or the accuser. So if we take some of the, some of the, you know, images, pitchfork, red horns, tail thing that maybe modern culture puts on on this person called Satan, that, that's probably a little inaccurate for what the first audience would have heard. They just would have heard the accuser, the adversary. I mean, clearly it's not a good, a good angelic being, um, but we don't exactly know what this means. Okay, so we're, we're in some sort of, of heavenly, you know, military inspection, the, the, the angelic parade where everybody's spears are getting inspected. I don't know what they're presenting themselves before God. And, and this, this character is there, the accuser. And immediately, God strikes up a conversation with the accuser. All right. Interesting. He's like, ah, Satan, where you been? He's like, ah, I've just been walking around the earth, 
looking at things, kind of checking out the earth. God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's a pretty great guy. And Satan's like, yeah, 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 I saw him, but, but here's the deal, God. I mean, you think he's all nice, he's all blameless and upright and righteous. You think that's all well and good. Here's what the accuser says. He says, the only reason Job is blameless and upright is because you've given him so much. And the accuser goes, you know what, I bet? 50 bucks. Put it out there. That's not in the text. I bet if, if you took away all of Job's blessing, he would curse you to your face. And, and oh yeah, and then and so he said, yeah, so, so the accuser says, so stretch out your hand and strike everything Job has and he will definitely curse you to your face. Righteousness gone. And God's like, in a very strange thing that doesn't make sense to me, God's like, okay, go for it. And so the accuser goes and all of Job's livestock die. Servants come up, they're like, oh, the livestock's died. All of his servants die. One servant makes it out and is like, Job, all your servants died. All of his kids die. They were apparently having a party. And there was a wind and the roof collapsed on top of them. All the kids die. And then, the accu- and then Job still blesses God. And the accuser comes back and is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you actually struck his physical body with illness, then he would curse you to his face. So God's like, okay, go for it. And so in a very short period of time, go, uh, Job goes from being one of the most healthy wealthy, successful, upright people ever to now being one of the most deeply hurting, wounded, suffering people ever. And through it all, he never curses God. And through it all, we're scratching our heads going like, what do do we make? What do we make of this story? How How do I interpret this idea of what God said to the Satan that they could do to Job? And I'm actually not going to answer that question today because we don't got time for that. I'm talking about encouragement, in case you'd forgotten. That's what I'm talking about today. But let me just say one thing that I said a couple weeks ago, remind you. Um, as Jesus-following people, whenever we come to a text of Scripture and we find ourselves going like, what? there's a theological concept that is critical for how we faithfully understand God's Word. And the, the concept, the word is Christo centrism. You know, students, put that in your next paper. It's a $5 word right there. For teachers will be impressed. Um, what it means is, as the author of Hebrews said in, in chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is the fulfillment and the exact representation of all of who God is. So if you want to understand any part of Scripture, you have to remember everything in Scripture points towards and prepares us for is completed in the life, the teaching, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. What do we do with that? We'll grab coffee and talk about it more later. Here's where this particular version of the story is going. So Job is suffering. He's suffering more than anybody could possibly suffer. And the next scene, his friends show up. When Job's three friends Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. Whew, there we go. Um, Heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Okay, Job's suffering. 
Three friends. We are going to go comfort our friend in need. The Hebrew word for comfort is naham. It means to comfort, to console, to express sympathy, or to cause suffering to be relieved. Like when you burn your hand on the stove and you run it under cool water and you go, oh, my pain has been relieved because of this naham that is being poured over it right now. The friends want to be a naham to Job. And in order to express that, the next like 15 chapters of the book are all three friends each giving three speeches to Job and then Job responding. Because as you know, when you're in a really hard place of suffering in life, what you want is 30 pages of speeches from your three best friends. That's what we all want in life. And what would be best is if you just went and read all the speeches, and you're welcome to do that anytime. But I attempted to summarize each of the three friends' multiple speeches into a single sentence. You ready for this? So what you need to do is you need to then go read them, and you need to tell me if my one-sentence summary is accurate or not, okay? I expect some emails. The first friend, the first friend comes back and says, I'm going to comfort you. You deserve this. Oh, I'm so comforted. The second friend, I'm here to comfort you. Job, I'm here to comfort you. Just, just pray harder. You're not praying hard enough. That's your problem. If you prayed hard enough and sacrificed more animals or better animals or the right animals, then God would listen and relieve you. Oh, whew, weight off my shoulders. Third friend, you just don't understand God. Job, not only are you suffering because you deserve it, you're all so stupid. You just don't understand it. Doesn't that make you feel better already? Just, ah. Oh. So the friends say they're going to comfort Job. And here's my attempt to summarize it. And here's how Job <laughs> responds. I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. When will your long-winded speeches ever end? What ails you? Like, what's wrong with you that you keep on arguing with me about all this stuff? <sighs> okay, so we're talking about encouragement. And the first concept I want to put into your brain as we think about the author of Hebrews' meaning of encouragement is the Hebrew word naham. And what does it mean? It means not what Job's friends just did. Okay? Concept number one. Concept number two comes from rabbinic teaching. Um, the Jewish rabbis, it was their job to help the people of Israel understand God's word, especially the Torah, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, understand it and apply it to their lives. And if you want, you can go online and get a PDF of the Babylonian Talmud which, if you went to the Denver Seminary Library, is 36 volumes. Every single volume is rabbinic discussion on the meaning of the Torah and how to apply the Torah to life. And just, oh, whoo, it's so good, people. It's so good. But let me summarize one of the arguments that Jewish rabbis had 
endlessly, was actually directly connected to what the author of Hebrews is talking about in this chapter, verse, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. See, the author says, make sure you don't fall into sin and unbelief and turn from the living God. Why? Because this is a life or death world we live in. And if God's the only source of life, and I turn away from the source of life, there's only one other option, right? So their question became, when in my life, in what circumstances must I confess so that if I accidentally die, I am still righteous before God? It just kept them up at night, and it got to almost comedic level detail because what they, what they reasoned was, okay, 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 if it's a life or death world and, and sin brings death, but God brings life, then any time I'm in mortal danger, like any time I might reasonably be in danger of dying, I need to make sure I confess right then so that if I die, I'm still righteous before God. So they had these arguments. What, what is, in what specific circumstances do I need to make sure I confess? And they talked about them. Some of them said, well, anytime you're walking across a bridge because it could fall, right? Or anytime you're crossing a river on a ferry because we all know ferry drivers are very unreliable people. That is a life or death circumstances. Anytime you are among palm trees when there is a south wind. I'm quoting, like this is direct quotation from the Babylonian Talmud. Anytime we are ill, women, whenever you're in labor, you need to be confessing. This is dangerous stuff. So, so they have these long, long, long discussions. But then there's this one theme that keeps coming up. It's almost like they're picturing the same strange heavenly courtroom that began at the book of Job. And they're saying, okay, well, here's the problem. If, if I die and I'm standing before God in some way, and my sins are speaking against me. So I need to make sure I confess. Unless there's an exception. There's a loophole in this whole system. They say, unless, if a man has great advocates, then even if he has not properly confessed while walking across a bridge or riding a ferry, he might still be spared. And they spent so much time talking about and thinking about and arguing, what is a sufficient advocate to speak on behalf of my life? The Hebrew word for advocate is parakletin. It can mean advocate, supporter, intercessor, peacemaker, or someone who speaks in support of or on behalf of another. We're familiar with the term advocacy in our world today, and I think the English word advocate or advocacy is very similar to this Hebrew word. An advocate is somebody who speaks on behalf of another. Okay, so we've got two concepts. Concept number one, comforter, meaning not Job's three friends. Advocate. If the advocate is great enough... The, the Jewish rabbis would say, if the advocate is a great enough advocate, then we might be spared in spite of our sins. Third concept, this one coming from the words of Jesus. As Jesus was teaching his disciples, as Jesus was 
living out and expressing his completion and fulfillment of all that God had said and done beforehand, one of the things Jesus said is, after I die, and he let his disciples know he was going to die, and he let them know he was going to rise again, but they were a little thick. It's like they just didn't believe it. But after I die, don't worry. I'm not leaving you alone. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. A few verses later, in the same chapter, verse 26, Jesus said, But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And it gets even better because then the same author, John, who wrote down these words of Jesus's, the same author, John, when he was reflecting upon the life and teaching of Jesus, he wrote in another one of his letters called 1 John. Clever title. It's apparently the first letter he wrote to that particular community. Um, He said, My dear children, I write this letter to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In a sense, John was making his own commentary on this argument that Jewish rabbis had been having for decades and saying, you want to know who the great advocate is? You want to know what advocate is greater, great enough to cover over any sin of any person of any time? You've met him. His name is Jesus. And he not only was an advocate that came to be with us, but he promised in spirit, in Holy Spirit, to be with us always. How do you know Jesus was such a great advocate? Because he came down to be with us. The Greek word for advocate in all three of those texts sounds very similar to the Hebrew word. The Greek word is parakletos. It can mean comforter, advocate, mediator, intercessor, or one who appears on another's behalf. And how did Jesus appear on another's behalf? How did Jesus show up on behalf of us? He didn't just sort of shout from across the room, hey, you guys are going to be fine. I'm here with you. I'm I'm encouraging you. No. The theological term is Jesus was incarnate. God did one of the most self-humiliating acts God could do. God took on human form, the infinite becoming finite, the perfect becoming humble, and weak, a child. He was physically present with us in our form. Now here's the really interesting thing. We talked about two Hebrew words, parakletin and nacham. Those two Hebrew words in a number of different places are translated from Hebrew into Greek. And when they're translated into Greek... They're often translated as the Greek word 
parakletos, the very word applied to Jesus and the Holy Spirit who is with us to comfort us, to advocate for us. And this word parakletos is just another form of the last word I promised, parakalete. And that word right there is an imperative. It's a command. And you know what it means? It means encourage. It's the word that the author of Hebrews used when he said, encourage one another every single day. So what does it mean to encourage one another? What does it mean to be a community who, when we're faced with the challenges of life, the challenges, the hurts, the hardships, the struggles, that might very well cause us to go, you know what? I'm backing up. I'm taking a step back. God, I'm not not turning to you anymore. Scripture, I'm not turning to you anymore. What do we do to encourage one another? We comfort. We don't do what Job's friends do, but instead we comfort. We show up. We enter into the life of people and we say, I am with you. In a sense, I would say to encourage means showing up for another person in a time of their need. Not necessarily with words. Words matter. But also with our presence. And if that sounds fuzzy, we might say, well, what does that look like? Here's what that looks like. Imagine a God who created the world good and perfect. I mean, God made that world with all humans in perfect relationship with one another, with humans and creation and God in this beautiful uh, relational connection. And then imagine that God who made that that beautiful world, watching as humans break it and destroy it and make a mess of it in every imaginable way. And you know what that God chose to do? I mean, let's be honest. When, when, When I try to make something, when I try to write a sermon and it doesn't go very well, I usually just crumple it up and throw it away and start over. Like, I do that on a pretty regular basis. What do you do when your creation starts falling apart? Eh, let's just try it again. What did God do? He showed up in human form on earth to be with us. So if the author of Hebrews, if their solution to our problem of committing the same sins and wounds and hurts time and time again, if his solution is to encourage one another... And if what that means is encouraging one another to seek life in God and God alone, then I think we can say it like this. If we want to help one another seek life, we must be like Christ. Present. Humble. Weak. And always there with one another. So, as always, we ask ourselves... What am I going to do about it? Uh, I'm going to ask you, um, close your eyes for a second. You can leave them open if you want, but just close your eyes for a second. And and here's my first question. Um, As we think about this ancient Jewish Christian community suffering persecution in the Roman Empire, as we think about Job, who just went through some of the most excruciating agony we can imagine, Is there anybody in your life right now 
who's suffering, who's hurting. Whether that's because of the pain of loss, because of the fear of illness, because of the very real challenges of of doubt. Who comes to your mind? See if you can call that person's name and face and life circumstance to your mind. And then ask yourself this. Where do I need to show up in that person's life? How can I be an encouragement with more than words, but with deeds and with presence and with my life and saying, I am with you. You can open your eyes. Um, I've, I've mentioned every one of these weeks, and, and I'm going to do it again, the book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It's an exploration of what does a really mature, holistic, healthy faith look like? And one of the seven marks of mature discipleship that the authors talk about is this. He says, mature faith looks like this. You make love the measure of spiritual maturity. And then he goes on to explore what are all the things that we actually try to make the measure of spiritual maturity. Uh, How well do you know the Bible? How much scripture have you memorized? How, How articulate can you be about Theological concepts with multiple syllables like Christocentrism. Uh, How much do I serve and give to the world around me? Never mind whether or not I do it with an angry or jealous or shame-filled heart. Just how much? And don't hear me wrong. All good things. All good things. But if we take Scripture seriously, the Apostle Paul said, if I do any of these things without love, they're worthless. I've told, I told this story a couple times last year, and, and it just really hit me um, again today. Uh, a story about a woman who had a, a condition, a brain condition, and it caused her to periodically, throughout her life, involuntarily fall onto the ground and be unable to get up. And she reflected on how so often, when people saw that happen, they would get really uncomfortable. And they'd immediately go like, oh, how can I help you? Can I help you up? What can I do to, what can I do to, and they'd, they'd almost get, it's almost like they would be more concerned that they were helping her in the right way than they were concerned about what she really needed. And, and in the place that I read the story, the, the individual that was speaking with this woman said, so what, like when you think about this challenge that you have in your life and the way that people around you respond all the time, what would you have liked for people to do in response. And what she said was, what I really wanted was just for somebody to get down on the ground and be with me. Would you pray with me? God, in in Scripture, we just read that as a community of faith, when people are struggling, suffering, when people are turning away from you, when when the hardship of life is causing us to wander and leave behind the one and only true source of life, uh, you told us that we can counteract 
that perennial problem of our human nature. We can counteract that by encouraging one another every day. And so I pray, God, may this be a church community with people who encourage, who show up, who get down on the ground in the midst of one another's sufferings, who say, no matter what you're going through, I don't know if I have the answer necessarily, I don't know if I have a solution, I can't take it away, but no matter what happens, I'm with you. And in whatever way, God, you've called us, whether it's a simple, small first step or maybe a pretty giant step, because you first loved us, because you came down to be with us, because of the joy of the knowledge that no matter who we are, no matter what's going on in life, you will receive us and forgive us and restore us. Because of that, may we be people, always, who give that same encouragement to one another. So we're about to sing the words, come as you are. So I pray that right now, um, every one of us, no matter what's on our heart, maybe we're the one laying on the ground hurting today. Help each one of us know that there is nothing in our lives so great that we can't bring it to you. Seek forgiveness in you. Seek healing and wholeness and restoration in you. May it be so for each of us and for all of us, we pray. Amen.